Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, Valentine's Day, fast approaching. So, uh, of course, we have uh, decided here to uh, devote uh, a few different episodes to, you could say, Valentine's Day content or maybe anti-Valentine's Day content. Yeah, usually Valentine's Day comes around and we sort of begrudgingly do an anti-Valentine's Day just to be like, yeah, it's coming up. Yeah. Terrible. But I've noticed this time we have like five or six topics that we have planned to really plumb the depths of different aspects of Valentine's Day. And yeah, to really attack it from like four different fronts and just take it out. Yeah. The 2015, Not to dinner, just take it out. No, take it out. Yeah. You know what we're talking about here. Uh, so 2015, we're really going to get into Valentine's Day. We're, we're going to dust it and put it away. And we're going to start by exploring the color pink. Yes, because pink and red have are the, the predominant color scheme for Valentine's Day. It's the colors that just assault you come uh, pretty much the end of January. Maybe even right after Christmas these days, you start seeing it popping up everywhere, trying to sell you that candy, try to sell you those flowers, try to sell you... God knows what else, all in the name of this big commercial holiday. Yeah, I call it the pink menace. And I call it that for a couple of different reasons. Some, you know, the associations with Valentine's Day, which is this sort of triacle that we we cling to, these notions of idealized love and so on and so forth. But also because I just don't enjoy the color pink, and I never have. So you don't like looking at it? You don't like wearing it? It makes me feel unsettled. Okay. Okay. And this is something I'm going to point out. I think some of our female listeners will understand what I'm talking about here. There is a certain hue of pink that you will find in a gynecologist's office. <laughs> and it's usually this kind of mauve pink hue that you find in literature about the reproductive system, or you even see in the models of the reproductive system. Okay, I know what you're talking about. The, that, that shade of pink you also see on the translucent... Uh uh, pages that go over anatomical illustrations. You, you see it uh, like nice and shiny there. Yeah, but you particularly will see it in a gynecologist's office, okay. and I call it vagina pink. And it's okay. just it's just that kind of shade of pink that's just it doesn't have a lot of verve to it. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a depressing pink. And also, I feel like I'm in the gynecologist's office. I don't necessarily need to be. Um, you know, walloped over the head with this color. I know what I'm there for. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in our culture, pink has become this huge gender thing. It's become the color for females, right? It's become fetishized, I think. Yeah. I mean, think about pink diamonds, pink firearms, uh, pink Legos, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Pink salt? Does that count? Uh, I feel like that is a natural colored salt, right? Himalayan salt. Mm-hmm. And it's very tasty, so I will put that to the side. Okay. Beautiful cracked over a freshly baked pizza. Okay. So in this episode, we are going to we're going to discuss pink. We're going to talk about pink from a cultural and historic standpoint. We're going to break down some of the science of pink, and uh, you know, and, and at the end of it, we're going to reach out to the rest of you and get your input on pink as a color, as a color that uh, appears in our our surroundings, as a color that we. We take on on for ourselves. Uh, how do we feel about it, and how does it make others feel? Yeah, I'd like to read this quote from Elizabeth Camp. She's writing for Aeon. 
magazine, and she says, Pink matters because it is bound up with ways of being in the world that are partially aesthetic, but also personal and political. Colors encode aesthetic norms that run straight through to style, personality, culture, and class. You know, growing up, I feel that uh, pink was never like a huge deal. Like, I wasn't one of those kids that was raised with this idea, like, just beaten into the, you do not wear pink because pink is a girl's color. But on the other hand, I don't remember having a lot of pink clothes, except perhaps around Easter, you know, where you would have to have dressed mm-hmm. in sort of past, pastel colors and go, everybody goes to church and you get this horrible picture made and it's, you know, and you're, you're, you're a kid. It's, it's kind of sunny out. You just, all you want to do is get out of those church clothes. And, but instead you have to stand around and stay in them and, and wait for everybody taken. to get together. Yeah. So, so I have kind of those connotations with, with pink and some of its pastel colors. Not so much that it's, I guess a little bit that it, that it is feminine as well because you end up going to, you know, to junior high and then it's, it's the, the issue of gender is huge to the point where I remember being uh, made fun of because my legs weren't hairy enough. Yeah, and therefore it was a sign of uh, femininity in me and was the, and, and, and I remember feeling bad about it. Like, oh, I guess I have to wear long pants all the time. Yeah, so, I was going to talk to you about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me ask you this. Does the color pink ever evoke, um, associations with calmness or peacefulness? Well, I will say when it comes to Pepto-Bismol, there mm-hmm. is the, there is the promise of possible peace with the color. <laughs> But with that, I also have a strong memory of it was either me or one of my sisters taking Pepto-Bismol for an unsettled stomach as a kid and then vomiting it up uh, against the wall and onto the floor. And the floor was white carpet. So we had a nice pink stain there uh, from where uh, someone had uh, had vomited. OK, well, that ties in lovely <laughs> to uh, a color called drunk tank pink. And why does that tie in so well? Well, it is a color that was used, and actually I believe it's still used mm-hmm. in some holding cells in jails. It's a bubblegum pink color, and think about uh, a sort of maybe an unruly intoxicated person. They're locked up. The cell they're put in is that's drunk tank pink. What are the effects? Well, the idea here is that the pink is going to have a calming effect, a soothing effect, because you have not a, you know, necessarily a delightful TV drunk like Otis on uh, Andy Griffith's show, but rather somebody who might be a little, a little violent, a little, uh, a little out of it and a little perturbed that they've been apprehended and placed inside of a cell. So, uh, if there is a promise of potential calming from this color, in fact, if you have some studies that uh, back this up as well, mm-hmm. all the more reason to just throw a bunch of pink paint at the problem. And uh, hope that it's kind of a magic bullet, right? Yeah, yeah. And this was discovered in the 1980s by a psychologist who figured out that this hue of pink could really calm people down. And they used it on buses, school buses. They painted the the seats pink, and they discovered that vandalism rates declined. Door to door to door charity workers wore pink shirts, and their donations rose threefold. And um, some some very clever football coaches even introduced the color into locker rooms. Yeah, uh, in particular, the uh, the visitors' locker room at the University of Iowa was painted pink back in '79, and it was uh, it was heavily criticized for uh, uh, for being you know this this means of demoralizing and also uh, trying to uh, 
to, to use colors to manipulate the effectiveness of your opponents. Um, one of the key individuals that pops up in, uh, in these studies is um, Alexander Schaus, and that's why you'll sometimes see the pink, this particular mode of pink referred to as Schaus pink, also known as Baker Miller pink, also known as passive pink, also known as P6118, which I like that because it sounds even more nefarious. Like, are you going to use P6118 against your enemies? Well, and that has sort of a incarcerated sound to it as well, right? Yeah. Bring out the P1618. Yeah. Schaus is quoted as saying, even if a person tries to be angry or aggressive in the presence of pink, he can't. The heart muscles can't race fast enough. It's a tranquilizing color that saps your energy. Even the color bind are tranquilized by pink rooms. Um, very much playing into this idea that it's, it's, it's like a vampire of colors. It just saps your soul out of you. Um, he, he conducted a, a couple of different studies. The most uh, notable one was uh, published in the final issue of Orthomolecular Psychiatry in 1979. This one, he took 153 healthy men, exposed them to cardboard squares. One of them blue, mm-hmm. one of them pink. And after a full minute of staring at these, they were asked to hold their arms out in front of their bodies, you know, like a, like a, like a horror movie, zombie or mummy or something. And, um, you know, and see how long they could hold them out. And then they, their arms were put down. They were given a, a few seconds to, to recover. And then they did a second test, same thing. And he found that all but two men were dramatically weaker after staring at the pink, while blue left the, the strength uh, in the uh, test subjects intact in both the first and the second strength test. He ended up following this up with another study, 38 men squeezing a measuring device, and again found, found that they were weaker after exposure to the pink. Now... The amount of time that you're exposed to the pink is really key here because Adam Alter, who wrote the book Drunk Tank Pink, has Mm -hmm. said that there's pretty good evidence that over a nine-month period, the very aggressive prisoners at a naval prison in Seattle were much better behaved when they emerged 15 minutes after being put in the pink drunk tank. After that 15-minute exposure, if you go up to 30 minutes, you have the reverse effects of that calming, soothing color, all of a sudden, that color becomes distracting. It, it becomes angering. Yeah. Um, it, there's also you have this idea that you're you're tamping everything down. You're you're kind of repressing stuff, and it's going to eventually explode. Like paint cannot constrain the uh, the the beastly heart for too long. It cannot. The the Mary Kay of it all will just fall apart, and the beast within all of us, even Mary Kay, will emerge. So we were talking about this after we, we looked at some of the, these studies, um, instantly thinking about the use of pink in sport and in physical combat. Mm-hmm. Like you, you would think you would see more usage of pink on the playing field uh, and, and even on the battlefield uh, um, in, in lieu of some of these colors. That it wouldn't just be a matter of, oh, well, let's, let's paint the uh, the visitor locker room pink in mm-hmm. hopes that we'll, we'll mess with their head. Like why not... Why not just full-on pink uniforms and let your opponents try and play against that? You have a 30-minute advantage, right? Right. And then they're going to start to become aggressive, but maybe they'll be a little over-aggressive. I don't know much about sports, but maybe it's like a judo thing where, you know, if they're they're really ramping it up, then you can adjust accordingly and use their aggression against them. Well, we were also talking about Dennis Rodman, who we were saying (laughs) seems to have co-opted a lot of the more more feminine aspects of, of of uh, his dress and his portrayal of himself. I mean, just 
Think about this guy. He's a big guy. He yeah. is, um, you know, if I were to be a basketball player and met him on the court, I might be like, wow, okay, this guy is formidable. Mm-hmm. But now think of Dennis Rodman wearing lipstick or his hair is a very feminine color or he's wearing makeup and all of a sudden it's like you're playing against a drag queen and this becomes an entirely different proposition because now Dennis Rodman is playing with coda with gender and with hetero norms and we know and we'll talk about this more that nothing could be more unsettling in a society that really uh, ascribes to gender norms than someone crossing those boundaries and playing with it. And it becomes a bit of a threat. Yeah, you're turning our established symbols and motifs on their head and uh, it's, I mean, essentially playing mind games with me. Like suddenly I have to do a whole lot of extra computing to make sense of you on the basketball court. Whereas before you were just, just a big dude. And they're, I'm surrounded by big dudes. I'm a basketball player out there. I'm probably a big dude myself. But then this, this just throws everything in its head. Yeah, so what we're saying is make sports more interesting. It, it, put the drag element in there. Yeah. RuPaul coaches. This is this is going to really amp up the psychological aspect of it. I would, I mean, I say this a lot, but I would be pretty much into any sport if it could itself be more like pro wrestling. So in pro wrestling, you see lots of uh, crazy outfits and face paint. If if you saw more crazy outfits and face paint in, say, professional basketball, I would be more tempted to watch. I would be there with you. Yeah. I got to tell you. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that we talked about, these archetypes uh, that, that you could turn your head, is this idea that women like pink. It's completely ingrained. It's hardwired. And this, of course, is an erroneous idea out there that women are inherently gravitating toward pink. And we sort of touched on this a bit, albeit indirectly, when we did our episode on the color blue. Right. Because it turns out that most people prefer blue overall than any other color. That's right. I, I remember in that episode I mentioned that um, that my son, uh, my, my wife and I, we um, we didn't say, all right, here's blue. This is the boy's color. This is the one you should like. Stay away from pink. But uh, it, he ends up gravitating towards blue. Yeah, and I believe that study, I, I, I know it was a paint company that funded it, um, but I want to say it was uh, 30 countries that they surveyed. Mm-hmm. And... It was blue first, and then I believe it was green, and then yellow was maybe the last color that that people preferred or didn't prefer very much. Pink didn't even make it onto that list, Hmm. is my point. Um, So if you delve into this a little bit more, you'll see that there's a 2011 study published in the British Journal of Developmental Psychology. And they had one-year-old girls and boys that were shown pairs of identical objects like bracelets, pillboxes, and picture frames, but with one of those objects being pink and the other being a second color. Now, they were no more likely to choose pink than any other color. But after the age of two, the girls started to like pink, and by four, boys were determined in their rejection of pink. And the point of this is that it is not hardwired. It is a cultural script that kids begin to absorb via all of the media around them, via the ways in which their parents may dress them or direct them toward things. Plus, you're growing up in an age of, of TV abundance. You're just constantly marketed to with products, the pink for the girls, the, the blue or some other color for the boys. And it's just, just beaten down into your head. Um, that being said, it's weird to, to look back at my own childhood, having been raised very much in this age of just 
all the television you can stand, uh, and, and then all the messages that are, that are on those airwaves. I distinctly remember, uh, Kinkishi muscle figures. I don't know if you remember these at all. Um, they're like little, uh, a, a Japanese product, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it was Kinkishi in Japan and in the uh, U.S. it was muscle men. Um, and they were all these kind of wild sort of pro wrestler characters, but they had like, you know, crazy animal heads or extra limbs. They were just elaborate comic book type characters, but they were all, this, they were all made out of this pink, uh, bendable material. Uh, and there was nothing, you know, you just completely accepted that. They're pink. Mm-hmm. I guess they're kind of fleshy. I don't know. They were called muscle men. Yeah. Yeah. Then muscles, muscles are pink. They, they weren't called squishy, non-muscly women. I guess. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. Maybe, uh, there was a discussion where someone said, all right, uh, these, uh, these Kinkishi guys are pretty cool, but if we're going to market them in the U.S., we need to name them something really masculine to make up for the pink color. I don't know. Yeah, that's some gender performance uh, term there, like <laughs> muscle men, yeah. All right, um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about the color pink and uh, how it actually hung with the guys for a long time. All right, we're back. We're talking about pink. Uh, we've already talked about uh, some of the psychology of pink and the science of pink. Uh, now we're talking about uh, gender and pink, and, and specifically how it's become uh, coded into our culture, especially here in the West. Yeah, because we think about pink as just being squarely for girls and women. But in fact, um, up until the 1900s, it was just as equally worn among men and women. And in the 1700s, too, you can you look back... Uh, at old plates, and you will see that men were just as likely to wear shades of lilac and pink as a woman. So what's interesting is you get to the 1900s, and you get to children, right? And this Mm -hmm. is where the coding begins. And largely, in the early 1900s, you have white clothing for children. And the reason for that is because when they're very young, what do they do? They spill things all over themselves. They urinate on themselves. There's a lot of washing of clothes, and so yeah. you don't want dyes in there. But as the chemical process gets um, a little bit easier for, for clothes to retain dye, then you begin to see more colors spring up in children's clothing. Okay, so we go from basically not having colors uh, for the children, and now we have them. So yeah, suddenly colors are in play for the the young children, and uh, it's left to the uh, the fashion authorities to tell you what colors you should dress your your children in, and. Uh, Interestingly enough, since there's not an established culture of pink for girls, blue for boys, mm-hmm. and in fact, pink is historically had been used by men and it had been a masculine color in many instances, you saw uh, advice such as the following from a June 1918 article in the trade publication Earnshaw's Infants Department. It said, the generally accepted rule is pink for boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. The complete reversal of of what ends up becoming the the gender color standard. Right, because pink is associated with red, and red is a more uh, virile, sanguine color, like the color of blood. It's robust. Indeed. I mean, uh, you're familiar with Game of Thrones. Yes, I am. Uh, You know House Bolton, of course. Yes. Uh, Vicious... Vicious house. Their, their sigil is the, uh, the flayed man. And the colors of that sigil, red and pink. That's the colors of taking a person's skin off. I was just about to say, that's what you would find, right? Yeah. A little pink, a little red. Yeah. Now, 
it didn't, the color pink didn't become uh, co-opted for women until after World War II. Now think about this, because this is important. Mm-hmm. During wor- World War II, you have Rosie the Riveter. Yes. You have a pretty stark reversal of gender roles, right? Because you have now women that are in factories, and they are working, and they are making income. Because the men are having to go overseas and fight in the war. Exactly. So what happens after that is men return, and then there's this uh, really intense movement for heteronormatizing the gender roles. Huh. For essentially putting women back in their place. And you see that in the fashion of the day, right? Because you see post-World War II, um, no longer is Rosie wearing the, her dungarees, right? Her blue dungarees. You see women in ads with like nipped-in waists, mm-hmm. and they're wearing a lot of pink and a lot of product plays coming in. You see a lot of shades of pink in the products that are being offered. And the message is that the woman's house is her domain. So it's no longer like Rosie the Riveter. It's more like tend to your roses. Yeah, your and in, pink roses. And instead of uh, and instead of working on the machinery, suddenly you have the benefit of all, of all this new futuristic machinery that's coming into your kitchen and into your household for you to utilize in your uh, traditional uh, feminine role in the house. Yeah, and hey, why not get some of that stuff in the shade of pink, especially new <laughs> beauty products too, right? You've got a pink brush to comb your hair 100 times a day. Um, now, in the 70s, you do see pink taking a backseat, and some of that is because of the more feminist-oriented ideas that colors should be unisex. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the big 80s return, and with the 80s, neon colors, fuchsia, and you see pink kind of trickling in again as a hyper-gender performing color. Yeah, because on one hand, you get the idea that, you know what? Well, you know, women can be scientists, of course. Women can have all these different roles in society, but... Not only are they strong enough to do that, they're strong enough to wear pink if they want to. Yeah, yes, but I think, I feel like some of this was really just a marketing juggernaut. Yeah. And we've seen this, you know, of late in, say, Legos, Mm -hmm. because no longer is it just, you know, here's these primary colored Legos. Now you have more girly hues of Legos and pink and purple and other pastels that are being marketed. It's pretty brilliant because now if you have a two child family, two different genders, you don't have just one set of Legos, you have two. Yeah, and it's the same thing with like a easy bake oven type devices. I've seen those where you have the existing one, which is generally some sort of a, a pink kind of a color scheme. Then you just change it to black or blue or something or black and green and uh, get a boy to cook uh, little gross things in it, right? And then it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's marketed to to those uh, those gender stereotypes. Yeah. Um, Side note, my daughter got an easy bake oven for Christmas. Oh, yeah? From, what color is it? Relative. Am I totally miscasting it? Purple and pink, i got to tell you. Oh, okay. Although they come in uh, different colors. And uh, the pizza is disgusting. <laughs> I've ne- I, like, I didn't think I'd ever met a pizza I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I, really, I had to spit it out into the trash can. I don't know what they're using in that mix. <laughs> also worth noting in this whole... Uh, 1980s uh, reconfusion of pink is that you also see pink being utilized as a, as a f- in fashions for men, but it's oftentimes kind of uh, wrapped in this I, this way of thinking like he is so masculine, he's wearing pink, he doesn't even care. That's how masculine he is. I feel like that's what happened with purple. Remember the purple tie craze and purple uh, shirt craze happening in, in the menosphere? No, 
Yeah, that was like the I don't I want to say like for some reason God, why is this in my head? Regis Philbin like ushered this in. <laughs> ah! But anyway, like over the past five years, it was like yes, we're in purple, we're doing it with style and masculinity, which is totally fine with me. I just think mm-hmm. it's interesting to see colors uh, genderized like that. But then I feel like a lot of that kind of gets back to this whole idea of again what the color represents and this idea of children and pink and little girls are sugar and spice and everything nice, hmm. you know, and, and boys are, what is it? Puppy tails, puppy dog um, tails. Puppy dog tails and yes, yeah, sna- uh, snail tails, gross things, slimy things. Yeah. And then pink becomes this sort of confectionery color, right? Mm-hmm. And girls are like cupcakes and, and not to take this too far afield, but what happens when you transform a girl into everything nice and she's all delicious spice and she's a cupcake? It's a lot easier to walk that kid into objectification the older she gets. She's something to be consumed yeah. or to be, you know, looked at. Yeah, she's something un- unnatural, something manufactured for consumption. And uh, it's really weird place to wind up. As a culture, uh, if I can return to pro wrestling for just one second, of course, and for, you can always return for the last to time in this episode. I do want to point out Bret the Hitman Hart, uh, one of the, the 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 icons of pro wrestling, always wore pink. Like sometimes it was very pink, like predominantly pink. His outfit. Other times it would be like a pink and black uh, type of uh, setting. And a lot of times he was a good guy. Sometimes he was a bad guy. But it never played into any kind. Like he never did any kind of effeminate character. Like it was never playing into feminine pink. It was just his last name is Hart, and Valentine's Day is pink, so he just wore pink. So well, and if we've learned anything from David Eagleman, we know that the unconscious is really at work here, right? So mm-hmm. if you're named Hart, maybe you would say, Ah, yes, hearts are pink and red, and I, I. Assume that role for myself. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm going to go back to camp um, in her article in Aeon real quick. And um, I'm going to read this quote. She says, the exclusion of boys from a wide range of perfectly viable, even important forms of dress and play because of their association with femininity is bad enough. But in a patriarchal society, the confinement of girls to a limited set of permissible ways of being is considerably worse. In particular, there is empirical evidence such as the 1998 research from the University of Michigan to suggest that highly gendered clothing can serve as a trigger for something called stereotype threat, meaning that girls and women end up performing worse than they could on tests of stereotypically male abilities, such as mathematics and engineering. Now, um, I know that Steph Mom Never Told You has talked about stereotype threat quite a bit, and particularly in the fields of STEM, science, technology, engineering, mm-hmm. and math. But this is all part and parcel, this idea that you're performing gender, you're doing it via color, via the things that you wear. And if girls are bad at math, as Barbie once said when you oh, pulled yes. a cord mm-hmm. on her, um, then they're primed to be bad at math. And that's why all of this matters, all this sort of symbolism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really gets down to symbolism. And I'll make sure to link to uh, our previous episode on the power of symbols uh, on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com because uh, you know, a lot of the same energy is at work. We establish all these meanings for these symbols and then also just the, the colors themselves. And then our brain is interacting with those symbols at a, at a subconscious level. So, I mean, they're really controlling us. Yeah, especially when you look at Victoria's Secret. Okay, which we're going to talk about in the next episode, too. Yeah, it gets its own episode. Um, 
If you look at something called Pink Nation, which is a range of underwear for tweens, and it's like this crazy, you know, fuchsia pink color thing, mm-hmm. and it's like these thongs and stuff like that. You know, it's like it's it's unsettling because you do see that you see all of this stuff being uh, codified and and put out there and consumed by the general public. And so, you know, again, going back to David Eagleman, so much of this is working on an unconscious level. You know, there's an article in the Atlantic, definitely worth checking out, titled "Will a major sports team ever wear pink." That I found pretty interesting. It does point that uh, in the 19th century, uh, you did see uh, uh, Penn State uh, deciding on pink and black for the schools and therefore the, the football team's colors, and they later changed it to blue and white. But for the most part, you do not see pink in any kind of uh, uh, major usage with a, with a major sports team, except during October. Uh, or Pinktober, as it's become branded, where pink, of course, is the color uh, that has been taken on by the uh, by breast cancer awareness mm-hmm. uh, groups, and to help promote that cause, you'll see sports teams adding some pink to their to their outfits, wearing pink uh, bands uh, in wrestling. Sorry, came back to it one more time. They'll add like a pink rope, you know, and then <laughs> mm-hmm. wrestlers will have like pink uh, have um, have pink uh, outfits that normally they they wouldn't have the pink color scheme, and all that actually just serves to cement the idea that pink is a feminine color. And if a male is to wear it, uh, then he's just doing it uh, out of a show of strength and bravery, uh, you know, for his uh, his female counterparts. Although breast cancer does affect men too, yes, albeit not at the, the same rates. Um, yeah, it's interesting that. that that it is then used so effectively in that campaign. Oh right? yeah, definitely. Because it's not a color that's uh, that's sort of a boring color. It really captures your attention, and so it is put to good use in that campaign. And as you say, it's some, it further cements the idea that it's genderized. And then there's this additional idea that maybe there's a pink pride going on, you know, via the pink Lego set. Like maybe it's a hey, well, girls can be engineers too, and they, you know, we'll just put some pink on it and encourage them to do it. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, I don't know why you would have to associate pride with it. Uh, why wouldn't you just encourage the child to play with whatever the engineering building block set in the first place in a very non-gendered way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, unless it's, you know, the point where they're already completely controlled by the, the, the symbols in place. Yeah. And that, you know, my daughter certainly went through a brief pink phase. Mm-hmm. And I would say that she's pretty well balanced in whatever you would say that the colors of that symbolize being a girl and a boy. And she was Jay from Ninjago for Halloween. She, mm-hmm. she was so excited to be the blue ninja. Um, so I have hopes there because, you know, we've tried to tell her that this is these sorts of things are available to you no matter what your gender is. Is there a pink Ninjago? There is not a pink Ninjago. There is uh, Naya, who is, um, she's not a ninja. She's a samurai. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's a bit apart from the rest of the ninja. But, you know, she's a character on there. But that, my she, daughter's but not interested in her. She's interested in Jay. No, she wears red. Okay. The question that we have about pink, and we're not trying to... Um, Blow your mind? No, I was going to say we're not trying to whittle pink down to nothing. But Mm. the question that comes up is, does pink even exist? Which is kind of not a fair question, but we'll go ahead and ask. Right. I mean, it definitely made the rounds, uh, this particular headline, because uh, at at surface level, 
it's just nice and mind blowing and makes you really love science. Uh, if you're the type of person who loves science without reading beyond a headline, um, then, then yeah, you just think, whoa, pink doesn't exist. I see it, but it doesn't exist. That's blowing my mind. That's like, you know, but, but when you actually get into it, it's a bit more complex than that. And, but it's also a bit more mind blowing than that. Uh, when you start talking about how we perceive colors and ultimately how we perceive the details of what we take to be reality. Yeah. I mean, here's the simplest way to say this is that, um, there is no single wavelength of visible light that appears pink. So think of Roy G. Biv, right? You're red, you're orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Mm-hmm. That is all the visible spectrum of light. There is no pink within it. Yeah, we don't see pink wavelengths of light. Something looks pink because certain wavelengths of light are reflected and others are absorbed by the pigments. Pink is a reflective color not a transmissive color. You perceive it because your brain translates light bouncing off of the pink object. And moreover, it's a bit of color mixing by your brain. So consider this. At the back of your eyeball, specifically on your retina, you have a bunch of rods and cones. Okay. Now, rods are just all interested in the amount of light that's coming in, right? Mm-hmm. They're light sensitive. And cones, on the other hand, are all interested in color. But the cones come in only three types, red, green, and blue sensitive. So what's a pink to do? Well, there has to be some color mixing by those cones. So if you think about it, you have blue cones working with green cones to produce cyan, and then they work with red cones to produce the color magenta. Now, if you want a true pink, then you have to have um, those cones firing just partially, those um, those blue and green ones firing mm-hmm. partially, but the red ones fully firing. Okay. And that's when you get a bit of you know messaging to your brain, hey, we've mixed this together, and that's pink that you're looking at right now, which is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to throw a little more context, too, um, when you see white, that means all the cones are activated. Black, none of the cones are activated. And if you want to see gray, that's all three cones activated, but only partially. So similar in a way to pink. So you think of gray and pink uh, in similar terms. Yeah, I mean, same thing. If you look at a yellow banana, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your eye lacks yellow sensitive cones. So then the yellow of that banana activates your red and green cones and they fire together and then they send a message to your brain. So it really is like having a little artist in your brain there. But... Ultimately, it's it's all kind of like having a little artist in your brain. I mean, yeah. In a sense, I mean, I, I don't want to feed into the idea that we're just brains uh, in a body or a rider on a horse. We've talked about the mind-body connection plenty of times. But essentially, blind brain, depending on these, uh, these feeble sight organs to relay information to it and convince it what the outside world consists of. Yeah, and uh, in a scientific American blog entitled Stop This Absurd Warm Pink... The author explains that photons and neurons interplaying with cones in the eye and the perception of the brain area is pretty much a magic trick, that any color is all in our head. And uh, this is from the article. It says, pink is real or it is not, but it's just as real or not real as red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Hmm. So in other words, we probably shouldn't you know, quibble about whether or not pink exists. But a lot of people were really quick to, to dismiss it and uh, and cast it aside and use this against pink. They are. And, I, you know, I'm tempted, too. I'm not a fan of pink. But, hey, it's there. It's around. It's 
It's Pepto-Bismol, right? It's it's in the, the color code. Do you think some people might have uh, leaped to this as well because they identify pink as a feminine color and would therefore see this as a an attack on uh, on the female gender? Entirely? I mean, I, I suppose you could tease a subtext like that out of it and say yeah. it's so weak, it doesn't even exist, pink. Yeah, or maybe they have maybe they have some sort of agenda against other um, uh, groups out there, or maybe against just Bret Hart in general. I don't know. I think it is the Bret Hart conspiracy. Probably. Yeah. All right, so there you go. There is our exploration of pink, and hopefully, this episode itself was uh, w- w- was in the pink. Was pink in the sense that uh, just exactly the way we we meant to. Uh, to do it. That's right, because the etymology of in the pink originally meant like the top of something. Like, you know, it's in the pink. It's the top of its class. But then later on, it began to take on associations with good health. Yeah, I was reading that uh, it's possible that it, ha- it also ties into fox hunting jackets as well. Which were more red, right? Yeah. But again, the associations between red and pink, there's yeah, you some get back fluidity that, that there. That Bolton territory where it's the colors of tearing something apart. So it would, it would be, you know, in keeping with <laughs> uh, fox go. hunting. Wow, that was nice. That, that brought it full circle. Yeah. Uh, hey, in the meantime, if you want to catch up on other episodes we've recorded, if you want to check out the landing page for this episode and check out the links, uh, I'll also include some links to some of these outside sources we've been talking about, uh, go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is our mothership. You'll find all the podcasts, all the blog posts, all the videos, links out to our social media accounts, anything you could desire. And if you have pink-hued thoughts that you would like to share with us, we would love to hear them. You can send them to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.